0: Governor Katie Hobbs kicked off Arizona's legislative session this week with a State of the State address that focused on housing, the border, and protections for the state's water supply, areas where she's hopeful for bipartisanship. Republican lawmakers mostly listened in silence. One Senator, Anthony Kern, turned his back on Hobbs, literally.
1: Despite the turbulence, and at a time when the state is facing a budget shortfall, This year's speech had moments suggesting potential bipartisan cooperation, and Kern's protest was the only one of its kind this year, which was also an improvement. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm Ron Hansen. I cover national politics for the Republic.
0: And I'm Mary Jo Pitzel. I cover state politics and policy. Today, we're breaking down the governor's second state-of-the-state address to see if her strategic roadmap to bipartisanship is achievable and what her goals are for 2024. Joining us on the show today is Democratic political strategist Tony Connie and former chief of staff to the Ducey administration Kirk Adams. So, if you had to write a headline for this speech, what would it be?
2: Governor Hobbs shows her experience in year two. What do you mean by that? Look, I think that the first state of the state is very difficult. I think you look at her team today versus the team she had this time last year. There's definitely a heavier dose of experience, both in the chief of staff role and in the comms role. And I think it was reflected in her speech. It was a very serious speech, and I think she really staked out the broad middle ground on most issues. So I viewed this speech as far more sophisticated than the one last year. And I think that's born from experience
3: and getting their sea legs. And Tony? Mine is Kirk Adams says good things about Governor Hobbs. (laughs) (laughs) No, but, but seriously, that's along the lines of what I was thinking. I think something along the lines of like, Governor Hobbs does what she campaigned on, right? She campaigned on being the sane, reasonable person who is going to be willing at times to work with the other party but also stick to her values. And I think that's – this speech really showed that that's what her administration is focusing on right now. It's like where can we find areas we can work together and where are the areas that I need to stake out and say, hey, let's just not waste our time. This is where I'm not going to be willing to work with you. And I think she did a really good job of doing that. And I thought her presentation was good too. I think it was like a compelling speech.
1: So let's dive a little more deeply into this. Tony, what did the speech tell you about lessons that she learned in that first year? Kirk is talking about a more sophisticated speech and such. Did she stake out any ground rhetorically or in policy suggestions that suggest growth or at least a better understanding of who she is working with at the legislature?
3: I feel like she's always had a good idea of the challenges she has with the leaders of the Republican legislature and the people who have more power over them, like the Freedom Caucus people. I think, I think that she's always understood that. I think what this speech showed, though, is that she understands that there are areas where she can put pressure on the Republican caucus to get things done that are broadly popular that are important to the people of Arizona and that she isn't beating around the bush with it. She's just outright saying – here's where we are. She's not giving too much detail. You know, she's not reading a law off up there, but she's being very clear about what her priorities are. The thing that I was thinking about during the speech the most is that people have always underestimated Katie Hobbs. And I think that her approach reflects this understanding that she's constantly underestimated. They underestimated her when she became the leader of the Democrats in the Senate, and she had some significant accomplishments. They did not think she was going to be able to win as Secretary of State she did. We heard most of the news coverage coming into the gubernatorial race was how she wasn't running a good campaign. I always felt like she was talking to the right voters. It panned out. She delivered. She was able to get the budget done in a way that I think most people didn't think was going to happen last year, showing that she was willing to compromise on things that, you know, I was unhappy about, right? Like that's a sign of her doing a good job and she managed it. So I think this speech was her basically being like, are you going to underestimate me again this year? Or are we going to have to have this fight again?
1: Kirk, you are uniquely suited to talk about this. You've been both the state lawmaker and chief of staff to a governor. You mentioned you raised this issue of more sophisticated speech and such. More specifically, what did you hear that suggested to you that this governor has sort of channeled her message to the right people, either at the legislature or to the public who's hearing it?
2: I kind of consider myself a student of governor's state of the state speeches as I've attended or listened to everyone since 2004. And a governor's state of the state speech is about more than just what they actually say. And there's a lot of strategy and thought that goes into that for months in advance, right? The speech is really just the culmination of months and months of work and thinking and strategizing. I think that there were sort of two broad categories that revealed themselves to me as I was watching her speech and taking some notes and sort of thinking about things that we saw in the past. First is, I have never heard a Democrat governor, even a statewide Democrat, with the possible exception of Kirsten Cinema, speak so much and so strongly on border security. To me, that was a major takeaway from that speech. I think it identified a level of political sophistication that, for example, we see in former Democrat, United States Senator Kirsten Sinema, now independent, when it comes to border security. Border security, I think, is actually a unifying issue for Arizonans across all parties. I think that that's reflected in her speech. So I thought that was a key moment for me. And the fact that she let out on it, that was the first thing that she talked about. And she really didn't hold back in criticizing the Biden administration's complete and total failure on this issue. And I thought that was very, very significant. She still had some red meat for her base. She talked about abortion rights. She talked about her position on ESAs. So she still checked those boxes, which you have to do in one of these speeches, right? But in terms of sort of the non-rhetorical part of this, I thought that it was significant that there was no attempt at humor. There weren't even any warm anecdotes about fellow Arizonans. She was establishing herself as the serious person in the room, which is always the best position for any governor to be in vis-a-vis the legislature. And it was a very serious speech in that respect. The demeanor was very serious, very straightforward. Like I said, I don't even think there was an attempt at a joke or levity. And I think that is very likely on purpose. I think that was very likely a strategy choice that they made.
0: So we've talked about the red meat that ESA's abortion, that's not gonna change many people's minds in the legislature. But what are issues that are likely to get bipartisan support and why? You you mentioned the border, Kirk. Really, what can the Arizona legislature do anyway about the border?
2: Yeah, look, not much. We've proven that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We've tried over and over and over again, but that doesn't mean they won't do something. And I believe that there will be something related to the budget or around policy that they will agree on related to the border because it's good politics for both parties. It's good politics for the governor. It's good politics for Speaker Toma, who's running for Congress. It's good politics for President Peterson, who wants to run for Congress. So it's all good politics. They'll do something on the border. Because they have to, there'll be some bipartisanship around the budget, right? They will eventually, as I always like to say, as the way water finds its own level, so does the budget. They will eventually get 31 and 16, and it will not be a straight party line vote for the budget. So those are the two areas where I think they will find bipartisanship. I have no hope for much else beyond that, frankly.
0: What's your assessment, Tony? Do you see other areas besides budget and border? I hope that there can
3: be some bipartisan work towards getting Prop 123 renewed. And the governor did talk about the need to renew that funding source, which Kirk, you and the governor fought for when uh, when you were chief of staff. You know, And I hope that it provides a reset a little bit on that issue, because. You know, as watching from the outside, my understanding of what happened when you got it passed was it started with a broad base of talking to a ton of people, talking to the teachers' unions, talking to Democrats, talking to educators, superintendents, everybody. But the way that it came out last year from the Republicans was it was a press conference with only Republican leaders. There is an opportunity here if they're serious about making this an issue of funding the public education system versus having. A bludgeon to use against each other, and so I'm holding out hope that. And I think that you know, Macrest stood up and and cheered. When that came up, so I think that there's a little bit there, and I think it would be a good way to demonstrate a willingness to work together on such an important issue. That Tony, you made,
2: you raise a really great point, and I should have mentioned Prop One, Two, Three as well. But there's also a very practical reason why they need to come together on that, and it's very simply that in order for Prop One, Two, Three to be approved by the voters, it's going to take a governor out there raising money mm-hmm. for yeah. it. The legislature is not going to be capable. They're all up on the ballot. The speaker's running for Congress, and frankly. From a legislative position, even a legislative leadership position, you don't have the same stick to raise money as you do when you're governor.
1: Gentlemen, you've both raised Prop 123. Kirk, you had a big hand in making that happen. What exactly was Prop 123 for our
2: listeners? Prop 123 was a rejiggering of the state trust fund that funds our school system and allowing more of that interest rate, more of that earnings to go into the school system. It really resulted in about three and a half billion dollars into the school system. If they don't get it on the ballot, they're facing literally a cut to public education measured by billions of dollars.
1: And is that because Prop 123
2: expires? It would expire. Its ten-year expiration is up. It needs to be renewed. The voters need to do that. And look, that whole effort, to your earlier point, Tony, was a massive negotiation with all stakeholders, right? Led by the governor. Now, what's interesting about the renewal of Prop 123 is in a sense the governor doesn't really have a say because it doesn't land on her desk. So they're going to have to leverage the budget and other bills in order to give her a seat at the table for the renewal of Prop 123. That means that in a negotiation they're going to have to prioritize the renewal of Prop 123 and figure out where it fits vis-a-vis her other priorities. Which could be a reason why there weren't a lot of governor-specific priorities laid out in her State of the State.
3: Along the lines of my "Don't underestimate Katie Hobbs" thing, like the news came out this week when people have doubted her political operation that she raised 2.2 million dollars to her campaign funds this year. Meaning that's going to be we're going to know who the donors were. It's going to be yeah. public, you know. And she announced that she didn't have to because of the way our finance rules.
2: And, and Tony, I think we're going to find she's probably raised more than that in other buckets as well. So she has the ability to raise money she will be absolutely necessary if Prop 123 is to be successful at the ballot yet again. Without Governor Ducey putting his entire political operation behind the passes of Prop 123, those billions of dollars never would have gotten into education, and it's going to require Katie Hobbs doing the same. That's why they'll have a compromise.
0: Well, the governor indicated that she likes the idea of more money for teachers, but also For the school bus drivers, the paraprofessionals, does this give her an opportunity to move that discussion to cover a broader range of school personnel that would benefit from pay raises? Yeah,
3: I think that that's the opening salvo in this negotiation that she is making where she's saying, "Okay, good what you did. Here's what else needs to happen in order to get me to the table. And I think that when when you're talking to the superintendents and you're talking to the people who run these schools, they're going to want that too.
1: OK, so I'm hearing a lot of cooperation, airs of bipartisanship and, and strategic messaging and such. But this is the Arizona legislature. I expect some chairs to be thrown, some <laughs> bottles to be broken. They're going to find something to fight about. Tony – Where should we expect the fault lines to be for any of the battles that may come up on either bills that are run and attempted to make their way to the governor's office or any landmines the governor may step into on initiatives she would like to see pursued?
3: Well, we've already seen that the real power behind the Republican legislature is this Freedom Caucus through hostage taking, really, not because they have the most members or anything. And you've already seen Jake Hoffman, the senator who leads that outfit, complaining about last year's budget and saying all these things. And so he's going to be throwing bombs. Of course, he did a press conference during the last state of the state saying they were going to sue the governor, which they didn't do. So whether or not these promises are kept are a thing. But I think that while there are the election people are saying, let's stay calm for a little while. Let's not push all these like divisive you know, initiatives about gay rights and our public schools and these kinds of, let's, let's just like have a regular <laughs> like old session the way I think that the governor, Ducey, was able to kind of calm people down in a way that there isn't right now. And so seeing that stuff like pop up, I think, I think there's going to be a lot of that. But the big one that is unavoidable is going to be abortion. And part of the reason is because the argument that you are going to see, I suspect, from the people who want the initiative when it gets on the ballot to fail is Do we want to put this in the Constitution? That's going to be the argument. Do we want this in the Constitution? So the flip side of that is we're saying, do you want this to be controlled by the legislature forever? And so it becomes a thing where legislators are going to have to answer the question, and there will be bills probably presented, where do they stand on abortion? And so I think that's going to end up being a big fighting point where I think that most of the pro-life members in the House and the Senate – I don't think they really understand where the public is or they don't care to to come to any sort of a common sense solution. So I think that's going to be the big fall line.
1: Kirk, the stakes on this in some ways are very different than what it was, for example, during the Great Recession when we had massive budget shortfalls. My sort of guiding principle around this is the smaller the stakes, the bigger the fights uh, on these. That People have the ability to fight over things that are more. Ideological or uh, wants rather than what we must do, given the state of the state at the moment with its budget and everything else that's on the table. What kind of distractions do you think might creep into the conversation this session?
2: Well, first and foremost, I think elections. And I think the change that has to happen so military overseas ballots can be properly accounted for and counted is going to be a flashpoint early on in the session that will bring into it all of the controversies real or imagined around elections that we've seen for the last several years. So that's flashpoint number one. Flashpoint number two was already signaled on Monday uh, with the governor talking about the need to renew the Arizona Commerce Authority. That very afternoon, Jay Kaufman, leader of the Freedom Caucus, issued a press release calling for the repeal of the Arizona Commerce Authority. The governor positioned herself squarely on the side of business and economic growth. The Freedom Caucus positioned themselves squarely on the side of... I want attention. <laughs> <laughs> on the side of something, right? I'll leave it at that. So I thought the fact that she... Look, there are a lot of things in a state of the state that end up on the cutting room floor. The fact that she included the renewal of the Arizona Commerce Authority in her state of the state signifies to me that that's something she will throw down on with the freedom caucus that's going to be a real flashpoint and a real fight my prediction is that at the end of the day the governor wins that one but that's going to be a real fight and then i will add on abortion abortion and esas those are going to be what i would categorize as election year political rhetoric Nothing will happen on either of those issues of any significance because neither side can afford to compromise or let something happen on those two
3: issues. I think, especially with the ESA, I think it's going to reveal the priorities of the different legislators and elected officials, and then that's going to become an issue in the campaign.
0: I can't let this go without also bringing up water. The governor had a water policy council, came up with a lot of recommendations you know some bipartisan she also seemed to signal that that pause on home building in the far reaches of the valley needs to come to an end because we need to build homes and there's a workaround on that but we've been talking about changes to water policy and things that might protect rural water supplies for years and they can mm-hmm. never get it past Gail Griffin is this the year
3: I hope so I hope it's the no, year. It's not. I don't think it is
0: <laughs> I And
3: I think part of it is you know, the messaging that I would focus on a little bit more when it came to the water issue is, especially with the the pause of building, this is a consumer protection action. This is an action to protect families. The idea is we don't want a developer or a builder to be able to sell you a house that your family is going to invest. It's going to be the biggest investment that you've ever made. And it's going to become worth next to nothing when you're fighting for water in 30 years or 40 years. That's what this is about. In the history of Arizona, a lot of people came out west because of land fraud, because there were people uh, when our state was first being founded who had plots of land that they sold to folks who didn't know that there weren't going to be any water or wasn't developable. Like that's sort of part of our history. And so that is a fight that they need to keep having where it's like we need to protect these families out here. And I do think that eventually – I don't want to be a pun. The dam is going to break on that, but like yeah. there just has to be a solution on this.
2: Yeah, well, I'm really glad you mentioned this because I really felt like her section in her speech on water was very revealing. So if you look at Governor State of the States is like version 1.0, Governor Hobbs 1.0 in January of last year, I thought was overly simplistic on the issue of water, almost to the point of being painful, and her approach out of the gate with that State of the State and their initial policy approach was deeply flawed and I felt like lacked comprehensive understanding of water policy and water politics in the state. Fast forward to this version of Governor Hobbs 2.0, I thought her comments on water were significantly more nuanced and more mature in the sense that she took on in this speech the traditional role of a governor in Arizona, which is, I'm gonna convene all the stakeholders and we're going to figure out how to do this, right? That was the approach he took this time. I do think that this move to regulate rural groundwater is destined for failure yet again. And I think the reason why it's destined for failure is because, and this is not only on Governor Hobbs, this is a longstanding problem, is I don't think water buffaloes and water policymakers have yet fully appreciated The cultural dynamics and the cultural impacts of a policy like that on rural Arizona ranching and farming. It's about far more than just water, it's about a way of life and the threat that the urban core is to their way of life. This is why Gail Griffin has, for many, many years, stood across the threshold preventing this type of policy change. But when Gail's not there, there'll be somebody else. This is a big, diverse state geographically. We're highly urbanized, which means we have a lot of voters in our rural counties and cities and towns that care deeply about this issue. And so I just felt like her speech was far more nuanced on water. I was personally appreciative of that nuance because that's the only way we ever get to real solutions around water is to be very practical about it. And I didn't think she was that way last year.
1: Water is, in some ways, the ultimate long-term issue for Arizona policy. I want to raise another long-term plan that the governor was speaking about. We're in a budget-cutting posture at the moment, but the governor is also talking about a vision on higher education and the mission that she would like to see higher ed pursue on that. Tony, what did you think about the governor's plans and just raising that issue at this time?
3: I think... It is a savvy way to draw a big contrast between what the leaders of the Republican Party are talking about public education right now at public higher education and what the governor is talking about. So you have Anthony Kern, who when he's not turning and facing the other way during his speech, the Republican Senator Anthony Kern, he dared utter the sentence, Michael Crow has been a disaster, which is, boy, is that wrong? (laughs) Like, who who thinks that? (laughs) He's one of the most important figures in state history. Frankly, when it comes to what he's done. And all of this talk from the Turning Point USA, Freedom Caucus types about defunding universities because they're not letting the right speakers talk on campus and all this kind of stuff, that stuff is annoying. And I don't think voters care about that. That is stuff that they are saying because it gets likes on the new version of Twitter and on whatever other weird far right wing social media app that they're putting their stuff out on. Voters want their Kids to be able to go to college in Arizona. (laughs) They don't want their kid to have to go back east in order to have a, a good education in order to have a career. And so I think that that is a savvy way to start building that contrast, which is one that I expect you're going to start seeing more on the campaign trail.
2: In addition to the politics of that, the policy of this is really important. We do not have enough healthcare professionals
3: to serve this state,
2: particularly outside of Maricopa County, but even inside our urban cores. It's difficult to get in to see a specialist. Senior doctor is not easy as it should be. There is a crying need. And if there ever was a role for public universities, it would be something like this. So I actually think that issue will be another one where we find some bipartisan support because, I mean, Mary Jo, you've covered healthcare on your beat for years in the past. You understand this issue. It's not something that has been just a partisan issue. Most of our rural counties are represented by Republican legislators. They care about health care in rural Arizona as much as any Democrat in the urban core does. So I think this is an area that we've just identified that'll have additional bipartisan support. And to your point, I do think that it is popular with voters and it does stand in contrast with some of the nonsense around higher education that really is diverting us from the real mission, in my opinion.
1: Kirk, the Ducey administration made a big deal out of sort of transforming the Arizona economy away from leisure and hospitality to something that was more tech-based. It seems like the governor's rhetoric on engineering is an extension of that, this interest in continuing To shift where the Arizona skills are found and and what we have to offer to prospective employers and such. Is there any traction for that? This is also a a longstanding priority for President Michael Crow at ASU. Any appetite for taking that on this year, or is this more of a long term plant the idea? I,
2: I think that's more of a long term thing. Look, I think that it's also a recognition that Arizona's economy really is at a very special place that we've never been before. She talked about how there are more Arizonans working today than ever before, What we could also say that that's at higher wages than ever before. Per capita income is higher than it's ever been before. Our poverty rate is lower than it's ever been before. But that's only half the story. The rest of the story is the economy is just beginning. This growth in the advanced manufacturing and semiconductor space is not just of significance in Arizona, or in the United States. We're talking internationally significant opportunity here in the state of Arizona. All the more reason why. Don't fix what's not broken in terms of the ACA and these policies. Now, what the governor is doing is she is adding a spin. She's a Democrat governor. So she's adding her perspective of including more apprenticeships and union-based jobs. And you would expect that. And it's consistent with the Biden administration's views on the CHIPS Act and things of that nature. So that all makes a lot of sense, right? There's a lot of common ground to be had there. The big play for the future around tech talent, engineering, it's not just tech talent as we think about like Silicon Valley. It's really hard skill engineers, right? And we're never, in my opinion, with the growth that we could be facing, we're never going to be able to grow enough of that in Arizona. So we have to continue to attract people to our state, bring these companies and these jobs and the talent with
3: it. And if I could say something about that, as working for cities for the years that I did, I know that when these businesses are thinking about moving and investing in Arizona, a primary, there's two issues they care about. They care about education. Are my workers going to be able to have kids getting a good education? But the other one that they care about that they might not say explicitly is affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason why our economy took off in the way that it did when the governor was pushing it and uh, when Governor Bush was pushing it is because companies were able to move here because they knew that workers would be able to afford a home. That's at risk. Getting away from an economy that was only based on building homes I think was a big priority for a lot of people for the past decade. Now we kind of have to build homes in order to get – people in. We have to build, we have to find solutions to this very difficult problem of affordable housing, which there is a little bit of bipartisan crossover, but there's also like very powerful figures that don't want some of these solutions to come together. And so I don't think it's going to happen this year, but it is a thing that has to be, I think that housing should be talked about when it comes to economic development.
0: I wanted to talk a little bit about the tone that was set by the legislative leaders during the State of the State as the governor was waiting to come into the House chamber to deliver her remarks. The Senate president and the House speaker gave what sounded like preemptive remarks. They talked about their agenda, including a really blunt, very clear message, no budge on anything to ESAs, the the universal voucher program. And then they welcomed her in (laughs) after laying the groundwork. I've never seen or heard anything like that. And I've been at State of the States for many, many years. What does this signal? What was the signal being sent by the GOP leaders? And We've been talking a lot about the hopes for bipartisanship. What does that do?
3: I think it sends a signal that Toma's running for Congress and he needed to get something out there. But, you know, I was, when, I, when that was happening, I had this flash where I was like, boy, that's today's Republican Party, looking at the two guys that were sitting up there. I thought you got Ben Toma, who's a guy who historically has been considered a guy that is conservative, but he was open to ideas. He's someone that you could go and talk about criminal justice reform. And I was at the ACLU. He was willing to have a conversation about that. Now he's pretending that he's more MAGA, won't say that the election in 2020 and 2022 were fair, right? So you got a normal guy pretending that he is more MAGA. Then you got Peterson, who was the driving force behind the audit, who pushed for as many of these kind of conspiracy-driven things... That became the dominating news story of the last two or three years, and the Republican establishment has to pretend like he's a normal business Republican. (laughs) He's still appointing Anthony Kern to a committee on the Senate. He's still appointing Wendy Rogers to appoint, you know, these very radical people he's giving dramatic uh, roles to. And so to me, I was like, wow, what a fight. (laughs) What a weird position to be in, because I think that that is what is driving everything is a fear This is me talking about Republicans, a fear that Republicans have to stand up to the more extreme faction of their party because they haven't figured out what I firmly believe that the core of conservative voters, if you take independents and Republicans, do not back the stuff that the Freedom Caucus wants. I, I believe it, right? You guys just haven't figured out a way to beat that stuff back yet.
2: Yeah, I guess my view is a little bit different of that. First off, it wasn't usual. I'd never had sort of plenty of years when I was Speaker where I would have loved to have preempted <laughs> Governor Brewer. Um, Why didn't you? <laughs> well, there, I think we didn't do it because that was the governor's time and there's a certain protocol and tradition, right? They clearly broke with that tradition a little bit, but these times are also very, very different than when Jan Brewer was governor and I was speaker, or when Napolitano the, the was governor and Jim Wires was speaker, right? I mean, they're very, very different times. And so I took note of that break from tradition, kind of raised an eyebrow to it, but I think I understand where it's coming from. I think that the Republican caucus feels a very strong need to demonstrate that they are the check on Governor Hobbs. And there's always a natural tension between the executive branch and the legislative branch, even if they're held by both parties. And in this case, where they're held by two different parties, that tension, I think, is going to be on full display. And I think that little break from tradition was a demonstration of that, right? I attended the Arizona Chamber of Commerce Legislative Forecast Luncheon on Friday, And you could detect sort of the angst and frustration, particularly from President Peterson towards the governor's positions on uh, water and ESAs. And I think uh, he was pretty exercised at that lunch. And I think that's carried over. I think you're going to see it's an election year. They know that they are fighting for majorities, to maintain majorities. And I think you're going to see a lot of rhetorical devices that are deployed just like that one was in this election year. The reality is there'll be a lot of noise, but behind the scenes, they'll figure out how to balance the budget and get these top priorities done.
0: Yeah, actually, it seems to me more like a continuation of what we saw last year with the whole director nominations. I wanted to maybe end on a lighter note, but one of the things that I heard guests at the State of the State talking about was the carpet in the House. Don't get me started. We're gonna. The house got new carpeting. It's a white and gray blend that somebody said, you know, looks like something that they'd find in a dentist's office. And it replaced this turquoise-colored carpet that I know Ron didn't like that was meant to evoke the Colorado River as it ran through the Grand Canyon. Former House Speaker Rusty Bowers was there yesterday, and um, he very wryly noted well of the carpet. You know, if anyone got sick, nobody would notice. (laughs) So it looks like people, especially those who used to hang out at the House a lot, care about appearances. What are your thoughts about this new rug?
2: It's funny that you mentioned that because I was reviewing some photos on your website this morning of the state of the state, and I texted a legislator about how terrible the carpet looked. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, look, I call myself a houseist. Being a former speaker, I'm a housist. I love the institution. When I was speaker, we brought back in the portraits of all the old speakers. I love what Speaker Bowers did by bringing in the mural of the Grand Canyon. I think we should respect these institutions for the uniqueness that they are. And bringing in carpet that looks like an airport terminal, it just wasn't my favorite choice. Somebody clearly doesn't agree with
3: me that we... Someone in the house is not a housist because that carpet (laughs) is ugly. There's a lot of things that politicians should not be involved in, and I think we've learned that interior design is one of them. <laughs> keep, your hands, keep your hands off my abortion gear also can we maybe hire somebody to just take a look at this before it goes in? But you know what are you going to do? you can't re- you can't spend money to fix it. I'd say tear
2: it out and put the old stuff back) <laughs> <in>. <laughs> We're going to see you down
3: there yeah. with, like,
2: uh, a razor blade and some <laughs> yeah. patches of carpet. Be me and Rusty Bowers <laughs> at the edges, rolling that stuff up.
0: Let us know if that happens. We'll be there.
1: Gentlemen, you cannot say the gaggle did not ask the hard questions. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your time and your insights, both of you. Um, Kirk, if folks want to follow your thoughts and activities on social media, where can they find you these days?
2: I'm at Kirk Adams.
1: Great. Tony?
3: Uh, I'm on Twitter at, at T-C-A-N-I.
1: Very good. Well, thank you both for your time. We appreciate it. That is it for this week, Gaggle listeners. Do you have questions about today's episode or topics you'd like us to cover on future episodes? Send us a message at 602 444 zero eight zero four or a voice memo to the gaggle at arizonarepublic.com that's all one word all spelled out
0: this episode was edited and produced by amanda luberto news direction from kathy tulamello music comes from universal production music
1: never miss an episode of the gaggle by subscribing to us wherever you listen if you learn something new today be sure to share this episode with a friend you can also leave us a review and rate us five stars. You can follow The Gaggle on social media at Podcasts, And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N.
0: You can find me at Mary J. Pitzel, that's P-I-T-Z-L. The Gaggle is an Arizona Republic and AZ Central production. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.